0: In this episode of The Cultural History of Satan, we continue to look at some of the precursors of Satan, some of the building blocks that later came to play a role in how Satan was conceived and in what Satan's story was within subsequent Judean and Christian ideas. One of the fundamental things we've been noticing in the previous episode is this idea of a combat. The combat myth, as scholars call it, that we find within Mesopotamian mythology about the gods, comes to play a key role and helps us to understand how Satan functions within the Judean apocalyptic worldview. Namely, that the battle between two gods is at the heart, or the battle between two figures, God and Satan, is at the heart of the apocalyptic worldview. So now that we've looked at some of the Mesopotamian examples of this combat, let's get culturally closer to Israel and Judea. We talk about Ugarit, which is part of Canaanite culture, and then we see how a similar sort of pattern in how people talked about their god defeating a threatening, chaotic monster or monster god that we'll see the same pattern occurring both in Canaanite mythology and then within some of the Israelite examples that ended up in the Hebrew Bible. And we'll look at a couple of the Psalms as an example of the combat myth that Israelite culture shared with these other cultures and that this idea of the God combating a threatening monster is precisely what feeds into the story of the combat between God and Satan. Back in the, about 1800 BCE, there's a civilization in northern, north of Israel, in what is later Syria, up here. And there's a little town called Ugarit. Ugarit is a place that is a best-known excavated archaeological site for what has generally in the past been called Canaanites. So if you read the Hebrew Bible, and you come across references to Canaanites, it means inhabitants of Israel before there's Israel, and inhabitants north of Israel. So Ugarit is an example of what would be labeled in the Bible a Canaanite city. Around 1800 BCE, so quite early, we have the same mythological theme of the combat myth also represented over here in Israel, or north of Israel, in Canaan. In some literature quite early on, 1800 B.C.E., very early. So we're getting culturally closer to Israel, aren't we? We're getting culturally closer to the area of the people that wrote the Hebrew Bible, what's sometimes called the Old Testament by Christians, right? We're getting culturally closer to that. We're getting closer to Israelite culture uh, when we look at Canaanite examples of this. And it will help you to understand the cultural transition from Mesopotamia to Israel and then to Judea into Judean culture when Judean culture begins to form after the 500s BCE. So we have two main examples from Ugarit this well-excavated site both involving the patron deity of Ugarit being the main god who becomes king of the gods. So it's back to the politics of this, these myth, behind these mythologies. These are very fragmentary, though. But we have Baal versus Yam. And Yam is the Ugaritic word for sea. It's also related to the Hebrew word for sea. Exact same word, Yam. Ugaritic, Canaanite, and Hebrew are directly related languages. So here it's Baal, the god of Ugarit, versus the sea. Obviously, it's quite similar to what we saw here. There's no similarity in language, though. I mean, Tiamat's a different word in in the Babylonian language that's written. Um, But Marduk versus the sea, and here it's Baal versus the sea. So this idea of sea as a chaotic threat is quite consistent. This is a recurring element, not in all of them. Back in that first one, Anzus holds back the water, but he's not the sea. But in, in many of these mythologies, and continuing on into Judean Mythologies of various kinds Including Christian mythologies The sea is often seen as a threatening chaotic force So in these fragmentary stories We have Baal slaying the sea Who's also known as Lotan Which is the equivalent of Leviathan in the Bible Comes from the same root And then in another story we have Baal versus Mot Now Baal you'll come across frequently in the Hebrew Bible so there'll be condemnation of worshipping Baal, condemning the Canaanites for worshipping Baal. Baal just means Lord. So the term Baal could be, in Canaanite culture, could be attributed to various gods, whatever god you consider the Lord, right, the main god. Um, but, but here it's a specific god, the god of Ugarit, as the Lord, as the Baal. Mot is a Hebrew word for death and the Ugaritic word for death. And we have Yahweh slain moat in some occurrences in the Hebrew Bible. So we're culturally very close to Israelite material here and therefore to Judean material later on. Let me also please say that Yom is represented as a many-headed dragon, a sea serpent with many heads, which is also how Leviathan is understood in the Hebrew Bible. And then later, we're going to see Once we get into the first century CE, we have the first explicit identification of a figure named Satan with Leviathan, the ancient serpent. The book of Revelation, John's Apocalypse, explicitly identifies his conception of Satan, personified evil, the fallen angel, as the same as Leviathan. So there's going to be a direct relationship as well as indirectly. So indirectly, all of this mythology plays a role in the idea of God versus Satan as a battle, a combat between two gods, let's put it. So in that general way, it's important for understanding the predecessors for Satan. But in specific ways, it actually has a cultural heritage that gets brought into Israelite literature, carried on by Judeans in the southern part of Israel, when they reformulate a temple in the 500s BCE, and becomes... Uh, important part of Judean, the Judean culture that follows after. Let's look at some of these Israelite examples, so here's where I should explain what I mean by Israelite versus Judean. It's a useful distinction to make. When I and some scholars use the word Israelite, we're talking about primarily the culture of people living in Israel. From the period in which the people settled there until the destruction of the temple in 586 BCE. The Israelites feel they have a story about them being in Egypt and coming and settling and taking over Canaan in the period after 1800 BCE. So the period from about 1800 BCE to about 586 BCE, it's useful to speak of it in terms of Israelite culture and to speak of them as the Israelites, partly because that's the language they use of themselves in the Hebrew Bible. Namely, that there were 12 tribes that were formulated at some point in that period after 1800 BCE, and that the tribes together considered themselves Israel. Gradually, there was a division between them, and there was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Those of you who studied the Hebrew Bible know the details of that. You don't need to know the details for, for what we're saying here. But the point is, this is the Israelite cultural era from the perspective of a scholar it's useful to call the period from 586 BCE on or from 538 BCE on you can take your pick so in 586 BCE that Babylonian empire the same one that had some scribes who wrote the story of Omarduk versus Tiamat quite a while before Babylonian was the dominant power in the 500s BCE gradually extending its power and it overtook the southern portion of Israel, which is the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah, which is where we get Judea from, right? The tribe of Judah is in the southern portion of Israel where Jerusalem is. And so in 586 BCE, the Babylonians come in and destroy the temple and take away the upper classes of Judah, of Jerusalem primarily. Take them away in exile. Not because they want to hang out with them But because they want to make it so that they can't rule Their own land And they return From exile when Persia Iran Becomes the dominant power Overtakes Babylonia Overtakes Israel And has a policy of letting the upper classes return And reestablish their societies So Persia has a different cultural policy But that happens in 538 BCE That Persia lets the upper class Judeans return the Judah people from Judah return so this is the period that is useful to talk about as Judean culture because a new formulation develops when these upper classes return they have been collecting writings that have existed before and writing and rewriting them while they were in exile in Babylonia the scribes and upper classes They return with the writings that ultimately become the Hebrew Bible, the the Old Testament. They return with those. They've been around for a while, but they're rewritten and redone and put together in new ways during the exile. And they're formulating a new society around these writings. The temple had been destroyed by the Babylonian king. Now, Persia is allowing the Judean upper classes to establish a new society and actually giving them money to reestablish a temple. Persia has a very different cultural policy. They actually give money to the people they've conquered to reestablish societies in cases where they've been previously destroyed by the Babylonians. Either after 586 or after 538, around there, it's useful to start talking about Judean culture, formulating. It's a specific reconfiguration of Israelite culture centered around the temple in Jerusalem, And around the Judean upper classes that have returned from exile, who live in Jerusalem primarily, but also in Judea. Jerusalem's in Judah, in Judea. Whenever you have the word Jews in your Bible, in, say, the New Testament, the word is Udayoi, Judeans. But we're so used to it being translated Jews that we might think of a religion, as opposed to people from a certain geographical region that, yes, have their religious customs that go with the geographical region. It's an ethnic category, Udayoi, what's usually translated Jews. It's more useful in this period, though not later, to talk about them as Judeans, to recognize that ethnic component in the rituals they have, in the practices they have. And rather than talking about Judaism, it's useful to talk about Judean customs and Judean ways of honoring their God. Let me give you some of the Israelites, so way back, not Judean, but Israelite. Not after the 500s, but before the 500s. Examples of authors of the material that later got included in the Hebrew Bible telling a story about Yahweh slaying the chaotic monster. The same pattern we saw in the Mesopotamian, the Babylonian, the Assyrian that we didn't give examples of, but you could. there's many, many other examples of exactly what I've illustrated today. This gets inherited by Israelite culture. It becomes part of the way they express the power of their God, the kingship of their God. They share this mythological pattern. And then it feeds directly into the story of Satan through that, as well as indirectly through the notion of the battle between gods. So these ones are going to read for next time, but let me at least read a couple quickly. Psalm 74 is an example where we have this, and you might not have noticed this quite as much, until you heard these other stories from Mesopotamia and what the meaning of this is behind it. So the psalms are songs that are attributed to King David. We don't know the exact date of these, but they're probably pre-exilic, before the time of the exile, when the Judeans get taken away by the Babylonians in the 500s. So pre-500s BCE, maybe as far back as David, potentially. 1,000 BCE is when David's king, approximately. Somewhere in between 1,000 and 500 BCE is where we are here with this material Contemporary with some of what we've seen here Definitely after this, the Ugaritic one was from about 1800 BCE The Babylonian one, some of the versions of Marduk versus Tiamat come from the 800s BCE The Nunurta versus Anzu is attested early but also late So we're contemporary with some of the material here A lot of that was earlier than this Here's what Psalm 74 has part way through. This is one of these pra- uh, praising psalms, where uh, sometimes there's complaining psalms, and there's praising psalms. Some are songs complaining to God, please, why don't you do something? And others are, God, you're the greatest. This is one of the God, you're the greatest psalms. Verses 12 and following of Psalm 74. Yet God my king is from of old, working salvation in the earth, You divided Yom by your might. You broke the heads of the dragons in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan or Lotan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Here's where Yahweh slaying these monsters shifts to the equivalent of Yahweh creating things. You cut openings for springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You established the luminaries and the sun. You have fixed all the bounds of the earth. You made summer and winter. So this author, this Israelite author, knows of these stories of the combat myth, has stories of Yahweh slaying various monsters, and equates that action of Yahweh slaying the sea with the equivalent of creation, with creating streams from slaying the sea with creating day and night. It's alluding back to that similar story in the Genesis narrative, which may also refer to the combat man. How does Genesis begin with creation? Does anyone remember? Does the spirit of God hovers over something? What is it? The void, but what is the void? And it's from the division of the seawater in Genesis, dividing the water to create land versus water. The Yahweh... Begins to create the universe in the Israelite way of conceiving it, at least that Israelite author's way of conceiving it. This is shared by the author of this psalm here that combat myth as a way of expressing creation. The Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, slaying the chaotic monsters to establish himself as what? King. Yet God, my king, is from of old. Let me read you one other Israelite example from Psalm 89. This is another praising one. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones, in the assembly of the gods. For who in the skies can be compared to Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like Yahweh, a God feared in the council of the holy ones? O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you, O Yahweh, your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule the raging of Yom. When its waves rise, you still them you crushed Rahab. There another a chaos monster we haven't come across yet, but it's in the Bible. Ray, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm, and then later on he establishes his throne as a result of slaying these monsters. So Israelites share a common, the combat myth. And there's A variety of themes we've come across that I just want to briefly summarize for you now before we go. None of this says Satan's already here. All of this says that there are things in the cultures that exist before Satan shows up, so to speak, predecessors that play a role in the development of Satan. Let me go through and remind you of some of the themes we've encountered that help us to understand what later plays a role in the development of Satan not yet, not in 1800 BCE, not in 800 BCE, but in 200 BCE and following, that these themes start to play a role in the development of Satan's story. First of all, the imagery associated with depictions of Satan later on draw a lot from the same sort of imagery we encounter in ancient Mesopotamian myths, in Canaanite myths, and Directly from Canaanite myths In Israelite mythology as well Dragons, serpents, and beasts As monsters that Yahweh in this case In Israelite form Kills in order to create the universe And in order to establish himself as king We're going to come across them over and over again Associated with Satan Satan is sometimes depicted as a a dragon Something that comes up in some of these myths But not all of them Comes important for Satan's later story. I don't know how, what the relation is. Besides that, I want to point out the rebellious aspect here, especially in the Anzu myth that you're going to read for next time that we'll talk about. This idea of jealousy and rebellion. A god being jealous and rebelling against the king of the gods. Or later, once there's Satan on the scene, Uh, angelic being, a divine being, being jealous of God's power and betraying God and rebelling against God. The story of the fallen angels later becomes developed into a story of rebellion of the angels against God. So it's worth noting that, even though I'm not saying that's where they got it from. We're just noting that it's also connected to the combat myth here, which is related in a large way to, to the story. The main thing about this, though, that is what I hope you've gotten out of it, is this whole mythological scheme, this whole set of assumptions about how the divine world works, that speaks in terms of a battle between divine beings, has been there throughout all this mess of in this. But it's not a, a battle of evil versus good in any moral sense. The heart of what Satan is within the apocalyptic worldview later on, he's The enemy of God in a battle. That's that's the main thing Satan is. In just about all of his early incarnations.